Okay, Tom, I've got a music quiz for you. Are you ready? Excellent. I'm all ears. All right. Are you familiar with this song? I am, yes. This is Bittersweet Symphony by The Verve. I'm picturing a young Tom Standage grooving to that piece. But now I'm going to play you another song. No, I've never heard that. That sounds like a 60s version of the same song. You're correct. It is a song from 1965. You can see how uh, Verve drew on this song. This song is called The Last Time, and it's by the Andrew Oldham Orchestra. Andrew Oldham was a manager and producer for the Rolling Stones, and he had this side thing where he would interpret Rolling Stones songs, and this one was taken from The Last Time, a Rolling Stones song that was also from 1965. Here's that song. Oh, this is a totally different song now. <laughs> no, it's. I know it doesn't sound the uh, Andrew Oldham Orchestra sounds nothing where, where are the like strings? this. Right? I mean, I, I vaguely remember that the Verve song had something to do with a Rolling Stones song, which I've never heard of. And now I've heard it. It sounds like something completely different. Where's the? Where are the violins? <laughs> yes, no, this doesn't sound anything like the Verve song anymore. But we're not done. We're not done. The Rolling Stones actually, for that song, nipped a little bit of this song from 1958 by the Staple Singers. It's called This May Be The Last Time. And this is in swing time. It's not in straight time. And this is the genealogy is getting, (laughs) I can't believe it goes back this far. Yeah. So Tom, now that we've run through this evolution, who do you think should get credit for that 1997 Verve song, Bittersweet Symphony? Is it the Verve? Is it the Andrew Oldham Orchestra? Is it the Rolling Stones who had the song that the Andrew Oldham Orchestra song was taken from? Or is it the Staple Singers who had the song that the Rolling Stones song was taken from? Who is your pick? I think Andrew Oldham, because, I mean, it sounds like he added the string part to the song that the Rolling Stones had ripped off someone else, and it's the string part that gets sampled by the Verve. So that's the bit that kind of I think of when I think of that Verve song. So he's the person who gets the credit for that, right? Well, it sounds like you're just ripping credit away from the Verve. I mean, they did put some lyrics on top of it and stuff. But anyway... Well, damn, to be honest, they just sound like they're moaning all the time. Ouch. Ouch, take that, Verve. Well, anyway, you know, you're wrong. What happened was the songwriting credits for the Verve song were split between the guy who wrote the song for the Verve and Mick Jagger and Keith Richards. And the royalties for the Verve song were split between Mick Jagger, Keith Richards, and Andrew Oldham, which seems a little bit absurd since since Bittersweet Symphony sounds nothing like the Rolling Stones song. It only really sounds like the Andrew Oldham song. It was only this year, 20 years after Bittersweet Symphony came out, that this copyright dispute was resolved. And Mick and Keith voluntarily gave up ownership and the Verve got its song back. But now I want you to imagine a next step in the evolution of this song. So let's say I had some artificial intelligence software that understands music, and I feed that Verve song and the Andrew Oldham song and the Rolling Stones song and the Stable Singer song all into the AI, and then it blends them together, and it comes up with some sort of synthesis of them that's a totally new song. How would you divvy up the credit for that song? Uh, Well, I suppose between all of those people, and maybe there's a way that you could, like, ask the AI to tell you how much of, you know, different bits or different people's contributions it used. And then it could say, well, I took this from here and this from here. So, you know, you could then apportion the the royalties that way. 
So you're going to drag the computer into court to testify in the copyright case. Yeah, good and in fact, you're going to, it's going to be an inscrutable AI that they're going to have to put on the stand. <laughs> That's really going to work. Computers that can compose their own songs are quickly becoming one of the most confusing and controversial issues in the world of music. We don't yet know how to deal with the copyright issues that they're going to create. And all this is happening as the industry continues to be shaken up by computers in other ways. Sampling, file sharing, streaming. There always seems to be some kind of revolution going on. Luckily, though, we can look back a century or so for some clues about what to do. Once upon a time, another new technology was upending the business of music. It was called the phonograph. From Slate, I'm Seth Stevenson. From The Economist, I'm Tom Standage. Welcome to season two of The Secret History of the Future. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. A century ago, the biggest celebrity in American music, the rock star of his day, was a very severe-looking man who wore little round spectacles. His name was John Philip Sousa. I think it's probably safe to say that if it's around, you know, the second decade of the 20th century, and you asked almost anybody in the English-speaking world to name famous Americans, they probably are going to name Theodore Roosevelt and then John Philip Sousa. This is Patrick Warfield, a professor of musicology and a devoted Sousa scholar. He says that Sousa's band was such a popular draw in its era that it averaged more than one concert per day, every day, over the course of 40 years. They do a matinee in one town and then take a train to do an evening show in the next town and then wake up and do it again. I can't prove this, but I would wager a greater proportion of Americans heard the Sousa band live than have or ever will hear Hamilton live. Of course, you can't see John Philip Sousa live anymore. He died in 1932. But there's no doubt you've heard his recordings. Here's one of his breakout hits. Is that him? I didn't know that was him. Oh, my God. Yes, this is the Washington Post March. And Tommy... Look, after the newspaper. Yeah, they commissioned him to write a thing. It's like kind of sponsored content then. It's like native advertising then. It's a little bit like that, yes. Tom, you might think that marches are a fusty kind of music for military parades, but Patrick Warfield told me that when this song was composed in 1889, it was actually part of a new dance craze called the two-step. Can we think of it now as sort of being like the Macarena or something like that? (laughs) Yeah, that's not totally unfair. I think you would have recognized the dance from hearing the march. Sousa composed a few other smash hits. Here's The Stars and Stripes Forever. No way. He wrote that as well? My God, he's he's a monster. Prolific guy. And here's The Liberty Bell March. Tom, see if you can recognize this one from a beloved old program on your telly. This is 
D'Souza as well. My God, this is amazing. Of course, that's the Monty Python music, as far as I'm concerned. Yes, Monty Python's Flying Circus. I could see like a giant foot coming down from the top of the screen. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. That's right. So Souza was a, a real Renaissance man. And when he wasn't composing music, he authored an autobiography and three novels. And he also wrote lots of commentary on subjects that ranged from facial hair to gun rights. But his most intriguing opinion essay might have been the one he wrote about a hot new technology of his day. It was called the phonograph, and it allowed you to play back recorded music. Sousa was against it. In 1906, Sousa writes this very famous article called The Menace of Mechanical Music, in which he lambasts the recording industry. At the height of his musical career, John Philip Sousa used his public notoriety to take a strong stand against recorded music. Now, the question is, why would a famous musician who you'd think could sell millions of records, why would he hate this new technology that let you record music and play it back? Why would he label it a menace? Well, first you need to understand what the American public's experience of music was like before the phonograph existed. For most people, the way you encountered music was to make it yourself. Back in the 1800s, the way you'd generally hear music is you'd wait for some touring band, like the band that John Philip Sousa led, the US Marine Band, to come to your town and play a selection of popular songs. Or more commonly, you'd just buy sheet music from a shop and you'd play the songs yourself. People were very much invested in making their own music. Lots of homes had pianos. Lots of people played the guitar. And we know this from, we have records of sales of instruments, and we can see that a large percentage of the American populace was capable of playing at home. Not necessarily very well, but they can make their own music and sing and play. And then, in 1877, Thomas Edison invented the phonograph, and it was the first time it was possible to record and play back sound. Initially, this was done using cylinders covered in tinfoil, and you'd wind the handle, and there'd be this stylus, and it would scratch a groove in the tinfoil, and then you could wind it a different way, and it would play it back to you. The sound fidelity on those early recordings was pretty bad, so people mostly thought they were going to be used commercially as dictation machines. Eventually, they switch from tinfoil to wax, and the sound gets a little bit better. It's still not great, but at that point, a few people start having the idea, maybe you could record music. As crazy as it sounds today, that was a big gamble, right? The recording technology wasn't all that good. Um, there was no clear market. People didn't own record players in their homes yet. This is the late 1880s, early 1890s. Of course, these systems are systems that work acoustically. They have big horns on them. There's no electric amplification. So you need music that's really loud and clear, both to record and play back. Music like John Philip Sousa's marches with their umpar bass lines and their piercing piccolo solos. And it makes a lot of sense that they chose the Marine Band because, of course, if you, if you don't know that there's a market for this, you want something that's pretty cheap. You're going to want something local. You're not going to you know, go to New York to do this. And you want something that's really loud because the equipment wasn't very good. And cheap, local, and loud in 1889, 1890, Washington, D.C., was the United States Marine Band. And so they actually make some of the very first commercially released musical recordings ever made anywhere in the world. So his band is an early adopter when it comes to recorded music. But then Sousa himself becomes one of the lead voices complaining about recorded music. 
The question is, why was he so opposed to this new technology? And the answer that Sousa gives at the beginning of his famous essay, The Menace of Mechanical Music, is that he thinks the recording industry is going to have a really bad consequence, which is that it's going to kill off the amateur musician. Because why would anyone learn to read music and master an instrument if you could just buy a recording of a professional playing the music better than you can? Sousa worried that these infernal machines, he meant phonographs, might even take away our ability to sing. We will not have a vocal cord left, he said. The vocal cord will be eliminated by a process of evolution, as was the tale of man when he came from the ape. He thought technology was going to get in the way of the very soulful connection that humans have with music. Did Sousa ever express any views on what role music should play in ordinary people's lives? Yes, he talks a lot about a sort of mythologized home life, you know, the songs of mother and home. There's a story in the Menace of Mechanical Music argument about, you know, going out into the wilderness and being able to take your guitar with you. And are you going to start traipsing out into the wilderness with your your giant Victrola record machine? And so there's this sort of notion, especially in the 1906 article, of that music is something that could accompany you all the time, right? You could play it all the time. And he sees that as a central element of what it means to be human. So if he if he liked that you could bring a guitar into the woods, but you couldn't bring your Victrola machine, he might have loved the the iPod, right? Because then you actually yeah, that's could bring true. your Victrola <laughs> into the woods. I suppose his one complaint about the iPod would still be that you're not actually doing the work. It was a sad idea that no one would play music for fun or personal enrichment anymore. But there were some obvious counter-arguments to what Sousa was saying. So if you look... Uh, after that 1906 article, almost immediately, there are articles from the other side about, no, 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 if people can hear great performers on recordings, they too will want to be performers and practice even harder their singing or their piano playing or whatever it might be. Tom, I think that time has proved John Philip Sousa wrong. The amateur musician has not disappeared because of recordings. I can say from personal experience, I played in a very amateurish band in college in the 1990s, and I did that despite the fact that I could buy CDs at record stores. And I know you're a drummer. I've seen the drum set in your house. So I guess I'll ask you, does being able to listen to recorded music ever discourage you from playing music by yourself? No, quite the opposite. I was coming home from work. Yesterday, I was listening to Herbie Hancock playing something. And I thought, oh, if I was playing drums with this, I would want to play. And then I kind of wrote down what it would be. And then when I got back home, I went on my drum kit and figured out how to play it. So I just think this is completely wrong. Listening to recorded music is inspirational. Doesn't matter what instrument you play, you hear someone being awesome, and you want to be awesome too. Yeah, and and I think if we step back, we can see that advances in music technology often have the opposite effect from what Sousa warned about. New technology seems to democratize music creation and have more people make music, make it easier for people to make music who might not otherwise have been able to. You can buy a cheap synthesizer now, for instance. You don't need access to a grand piano. Yes, these days, creating music is open to anyone with a computer. They can tap into free software that lets you make sounds and compose songs. And anyone with a connection to the internet can then upload their songs to streaming services, which make them available for the whole world to hear. Yeah, and in fact, the very technology that Sousa thought was going to make people stop learning to play instruments, the phonograph, which became the record player, well, the record player turned into a sort of musical instrument of its own people learned how to use it to make brand new kinds of sounds. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hip hop's one of the only genres that supposedly has a kind of definite birthday, which is a date in August of 1973 when a DJ from New York called Herc Uh, held a party at a recreation center in the Bronx. This is Chris Reed. He's the head of content for Who Sampled, which is a database of information about musical samples and remixes. So the story goes that during that party, he made a kind of discovery or revelation, which was to do with the way people responded to the music. Cool Herc had come to recognize that one of people's favorite things on the dance floor was when the music dropped out in a song and it was just the drums alone for a few bars. Which is a feature of many, many funk records and records from other genres as well, but specifically funk records. People love that drum break moment. So his response to that was to think of a way to kind of extend that magic moment in the record. Uh, which he did by using two copies of, of the record and quite simply going back and forth on two turntables from one copy of the record to the other and then back again, could extend that section by playing it over and over again. And that was the first instance, really, of the turntable being used in a way that it wasn't intended for originally. So here we see early hip-hop DJs turning John Philip Sousa's fear on its head. Not only did the record player not prevent people from creating their own music, it became the instrument by which they created their own music, looping and scratching existing records. After this initial trick where you can make an infinite drum break, what became known as a breakbeat, DJs started to figure out that they could combine all sorts of different parts of previously recorded music into something totally new. And there's this direct path that goes from doing this with a couple of turntables to later, when the technology appears, being able to sample bits of other people's music digitally and insert them in your own work. So you can sample James Brown's drummer or you can, and you can sample, you know, some horns from Miles Davis or and you can sample some piano from, you know, Ramsey Lewis or, you know, you're constructing a band of these great musicians and you're tying all their music together into a, into a new composition. It's almost like the the building blocks of composing aren't notes anymore so much as snippets of sounds that you're putting together. Yeah, it's not just the notes uh, and it's not just what's being played, but it's the sonic quality of it as well.
digital sampling really starts with a device in the late 1970s called the Fairlight CMI, a music workstation that could capture and replay any sound. The Fairlight was extremely expensive. Stevie Wonder and Herbie Hancock were early adopters, and so were Peter Gabriel and Kate Bush. But by the mid-1980s, samplers were starting to become much more affordable. They cost a few hundred dollars rather than tens of thousands of dollars like the Fairlight did. I had one called an Emacs, and there was a very popular one called the Akai S9. And this meant, essentially, if you could afford a guitar, you could probably afford a sampler. That affordability put them into the hands of all sorts of people who used them in all sorts of new ways. Maybe this would shock John Philip Sousa if he were still alive, but with sampling, we see a new technology that relied on recorded music and that actually encouraged new groups of people to get involved in making music. And it's this infusion of new talent and new ideas in the 80s and early 90s that made sampling really come into its own as an art form. In many of the cases of the, of the most, I guess, revered uh, records from that period, it, it was done in a very musical way. And, and um, if you look at the music of, say, De La Soul, you know, Prince Paul famously layered bits and pieces from all sorts of different sources on top of one another, but it was done in a very melodic and musical way. I mean, Three is a Magic Number is great. Um, it samples uh, Bob Dora, which is a kind of kid's record, I guess, um, for the main hook. Here's that hook from a 1973 children's song. Three, you, can see it's a magic number. you take that hook and then add these sampled drums from a 1973 Led Zeppelin song. And you get this 1989 De La Soul song called The Magic Number. Three... That's a magic number. I remember that one. Someone gave us a, a tape of that one. Oh, maybe it was a CD. It must have been a CD. Uh, it was like a mixtape on a CD back in the day with Rip Mix Burn when our daughter was born. Because then there were three of us, you oh, see. Oh, nice. That's cute. The song that results from all this sampling is clearly something new. But it's also clearly drawing from other people's work. And that's where things get complicated. Most of De La Soul's catalog, including this song, is basically impossible to buy or to find on streaming services. And that's in large part due to copyright disputes about the underlying samples that De La Soul used. You know, unfortunately, they are a kind of victim of their own success and a victim of of being trailblazers in this because they were among the first artists to be... Uh, to be sued for use of samples. Sampling created all sorts of new questions about ownership and copyright. There were lots of legal battles, and in fact, we're still sorting out how to deal with this. On one side, there are ideas like Creative Commons, which tries to make it easier to retain some ownership over your work while still making it available for other people to sample or remix or repurpose into their own creations. And on the other side, you have things like the proposed new European Union Directive on Copyright, which would try to create more stringent controls on copyrighted materials. And that could have all sorts of knock-on effects for people who want to sample and recombine old work to make new work. A lot of these questions are still up in the air, even decades after sampling first took off. Those cases involving De La Soul were 30 years or so ago. Um, And the law hasn't really moved on enough. When you look at the top 40 and you realise that, you know, half to two-thirds of the songs are either cover versions or remixes or something or incorporate samples in some way, and you look at the sheer volume of new sample-based music that's being uploaded by kids in their bedroom onto SoundCloud and Bandcamp every single day, 
you know, it's it's entirely evident that this is the way that pretty much all music is still made and the law is a long way behind, sadly. It's easy to get lost in the legal weeds here over how to assign rights and divvy up royalties. But at a broader level, this is a question about moral ownership. When an artist creates something and puts it into the world, does it belong to her or does it belong to everyone to use it however they see fit? Well, it turns out that there was a moment in the past when a new technology was creating difficult questions about music and ownership. And right in the middle of that debate was our old friend, John Philip Sousa. In the late 1870s, there was a huge craze for a funny new musical called HMS Pinafore. The show's authors, the famous English duo Gilbert and Sullivan, had debuted it in London, and it almost immediately jumped over the ocean to the United States. But the U.S. versions of HMS Pinafore were all pirated. The performances weren't authorized by Gilbert and Sullivan and didn't pay any royalties to them. And because of the copyright laws at the time, Gilbert and Sullivan had no legal remedy. Here's our Sousa scholar Patrick Warfield again. The interesting problem was that in those days, if you published something, you were dedicating it to the public. That's what the word meant. So once you had published the songs to HMS Pinafore, anyone was allowed to play the songs to HMS Pinafore. Gilbert and Sullivan didn't want to stop publishing their sheet music because they did get royalties when people bought that. So the only weapon they had to stop pirated performances was to hold back the other details of the show. So Gilbert and Sullivan had this little trick. If you think about what makes up an operetta, there's the songs, there's dialogue that's spoken, and there's stage directions. Well, all they published were the songs, not the dialogue or the stage directions. But the trick only partly worked because anyone could go and watch the official version of the show and then try to memorize all the dialogue and staging and then put it together with the sheet music to make an approximation of the original performance. And one person who helped put together a pirated American version of HMS Pinafore was a young John Philip Sousa. He was enlisted to orchestrate the sheet music and try to make the songs sound like they did in London. And there's actually a lawsuit, I think this is about 1882, where he is named. Um, he was a, they were basically accused of creating an orchestration of an operetta that was so bad it might damage the reputation of the operetta. He's like a human sampler then. Yes, that's exactly right. <laughs> So when he was young, still in his 20s, Sousa was making money by ripping off other composers. And by the way, this didn't just stop at orchestrating their sheet music. He also borrowed some themes from Gilbert and Sullivan in his own compositions. But by the time Sousa was in his 50s, his tune had totally changed when it came to moral ownership of music. This is what I think is really interesting about Sousa of the 1870s and Sousa of 1906, right? By 1906, he's now the Gilbert and Sullivan. He's the famous person whose income is being disrupted by a new technology. That new technology was recorded music. Sousa had been accustomed to receiving royalties from the sales of his sheet music and making money from the tickets sold on his concert tours. But then the record player came along. So the cylinders that had been used to record music were replaced by discs. And the big difference between a cylinder and a disc is that you can stamp out as many copies as you like of a disc, whereas copying cylinders was very complicated and expensive. And as a result, recordings became much cheaper and more popular around the turn of the century. And copyright law struggled to keep up. So now we come back to this famous 1906 essay Sousa wrote called The Menace of Mechanical Music. 
Sousa spends the first half of the essay claiming his fears that recorded music will kill off amateur musicianship. But then he makes this delicate turn where he writes, and now a word on a detail of personal interest. <clears throat> yes. And after having made all these selfless arguments on behalf of the amateur musician, Sousa finally admits what his real problem with recorded music is. He's not getting paid for it. So he makes the argument basically on a cultural ground, right, that we're going to lose amateur music making. In reality, he's also in the midst of a discussion about revising the copyright law. Because the copyright law, as it existed, would have allowed a, let's say, a band leader to walk into a sheet music store, purchase a copy of one of Sousa's marches, take it home. Sousa would have gotten royalties on that one copy. This guy could have taken it home, recorded it, made 10,000 copies of the recording and sold those, and Sousa would have seen not a dime. So while he's making a cultural argument about the loss of amateur music making, in reality, he's also got this concern about somebody else is making money off of his marches and he's not. Sousa complained in his essay that the composer of the most popular waltz or march of the year must see it seized and reproduced at will and sold at large profit all over the country without a penny of remuneration to himself for the use of this original product of his brain. When Sousa was writing this in 1906, America was in the middle of a debate about how to fix copyright law in order to deal with this new technology. There were strong feelings on both sides. The people who made recordings argued that once they'd paid for sheet music and hired people to play it, they'd done their duty and should be free to sell as many records as they could produce. They compared it to buying a trumpet and then being charged every time they played it. In 1909, the United States finally resolved its copyright confusion. A law was passed that let composers control their own works and forced people who were making mechanical copies of those works to pay royalties. And that 1909 copyright law actually stood without any major revisions until the 1970s when it got some updates. So this suggests that we can figure these things out. It took a few decades after the invention of the phonograph to figure out the copyright laws around recording. And now we're a few decades on from the invention of the digital sampler, and we're trying to coalesce around laws that make sense for creating music in the 21st century. And it seems like we might be homing in on some solutions. But just as we start to get a hold on sampling, a brand new technology is arriving that will make music ownership even more confusing. Perhaps the most interesting technological development in music in the last few decades is the ability to let a computer compose music for you. Artificial intelligence is getting better and better at writing songs. I personally, I, I hit the point where I'm like, wow, MuseNet is better at imitating Chopin than I am, which is funny because I've played Chopin my whole life. <laughs> Christine Payne is a pianist and a computer scientist. She's been working on a project called MuseNet, which is one of many neural networks out there that are learning how to compose music. There's no doubt that MuseNet makes it a lot easier for you to write music if you have no background in writing music. All you have to do is set it going and kind of nudge it in the direction you want. And I've already seen it happening where um, I'm having people who, you know, don't have any sort of formal music background, but so many people just, you, you know what you like. You know when you hear a piece and you say, oh, I want to hear more of that. Um, and now it's possible to create a piece just by knowing that. You don't need to know, you know, how to create sort of a harmonic pattern or how to do the rhythms. Like, MuseNet will take care of that part. Since it lets you compose music almost on demand without paying a professional composer, a lot of people see AI as a quick and cheap way to generate music as background soundtracks for low-budget TV shows or advertisements or podcasts. 
If you listen closely, you can hear some AI-created music underneath what I'm saying right now. But there are some more interesting possibilities. Maybe AI could compose a soundtrack for your whole day and instantly shift the style of music if its sensors notice that your mood's changing. Or maybe it could make music that sounds nothing like anything we've ever heard before. One of the things that I think about sometimes is, uh, like, what would it mean to have superhuman music? Like, could we imagine composing something that's just, like, better than a human could do on their own? Like, I, I, I mean, we think... Like, certainly there are tons of sounds and tons of styles that we've never even imagined yet. And so if we could kind of tap into things that we would listen to and say, oh, wow, that's that's really amazing, but, you know, not something that we ever would have thought of creating on our own. I feel like that could be a really exciting way to go. That sounds very futuristic, but the way that AI-generated music works is to draw on stuff from the past. The neural net learns how to compose by listening to previously recorded music and analysing it for patterns. And then it could pull from those patterns and compose something that's clearly original, but is in some ways deeply indebted to the music that the AI originally learned from. This is sort of the next evolutionary step from sampling. You don't just sample a snippet from one artist and a snippet from another artist and mix them together the way that De La Soul did. You feed the AI all the recordings of both those artists and then ask it to compose an integrated piece that incorporates both their styles. The one that really sold me as like, wow, this is wild and and neat is that uh, I asked it to create uh, or start with the Chopin Nocturne and then do it in the style of Bon Jovi. And it, it sort of starts along as like a normal Chopin Nocturne and then about 30 seconds in, the like the band kicks in and it's just this amazing moment and it and it continues the the left hand is still very much the Chopin nocturne but the rest of it is is this pop song and to me I was like wow this is wild and I've never heard anything like this before But just like sampling you can see how this would start to create some pretty thorny ownership issues If you feed the AI some Chopin and some Bon Jovi and have it make a new song out of that, well, is that your song? Is that Chopin's song or Bon Jovi's song? Or is that the AI's song? Yeah, is that the AI's song? Yeah, (laughs) think about that, John Philip Sousa. (laughs) Do you think a composer who uses MuseNet to help them compose big, you know, substantive parts of a composition, do you think they're morally obligated to give a co-composition credit to MuseNet? Um, I would personally like to see uh, sort of that connection, sort of acknowledging that this was a tool in the running of the piece. Uh, I think it's a, a fairly, you know, right now, the, my understanding is the way copyright goes, it's it's still very much the human who who does that. Um, I, I'm hesitating a little because I also, you know, I, I'm not a lawyer, so I, and I, I've actually, you know, tried to talk to other lawyers now at this point about where is this line. And I think part of the sense is this is this is a very uh, open field right now in law, and um, it'll probably have to evolve in the upcoming years. If you thought the legal issues raised by the phonograph or even sampling were complicated, AI promises to really scramble some of the assumptions we have around copyright law. To get a handle on this, we talked to Stuart Rosen, the general counsel at BMI, which is an organization that protects the rights of songwriters. He told us he'd recently made a presentation to his corporate board about AI music because he can sense it's a looming issue in the industry. I'm already seeing that this is is, um, um, the topic of the next year or two. Are people 
confused? Are there a variety of viewpoints about how this should go or how this will go? Absolutely. Absolutely. So I remember there was that story a few years ago where a monkey grabbed a photographer's camera and took a selfie with it. And then there was a big fight over who owned the copyright on the photo. Was it the photographer? Was it the monkey? And the fight ended with the courts deciding that a monkey, a non-human, cannot hold a copyright. So is that relevant here? Uh, it is. It, 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 right now, it seems like if an AI composes a song, it can't own the song. At least for now, that looks at where the courts stand. But that still leaves open the question of whether any human owns the song that the AI composed. You have algorithms that will create works with little or no human interaction. A human might give certain parameters. I want a 4-4 beat and I want it to be a sad-sounding song and I want it to be country. Are those parameters that the human gave enough to confer copyrightability on the human? No, we don't believe so anyway. One of the scenarios I've heard people talk about is, what if I, you know, I have no musical composition skill at all, but I get one of these AI programs and I just click a thousand times or a hundred, just, just compose hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of songs and let them sit and then wait for another song to come out that sounds like it and say, hey, I have that song, or, or just somehow with this warehouse of songs that I've clicked a button to make that I could somehow wield that. Human beings have not exhausted what you can do with the, with the traditional musical scale, but computers will, right? If you, pro, if you program a computer and give it enough time, it's going to compose every song ever created which is going to be troublesome for the current model of copyright. And that's one reason, I think, why people are very careful before they just confer protection on those, uh, on those compositions, because there is the ability at some point for technology to just to overrun the, the capacity of humans to create. So far, there haven't been any major cases involving AI-composed music, but people are already starting to see dollar signs, and where there be dollar signs, there be litigation. I think one thing we know is that AI is going to get smarter. And even though there's no example I'm aware of of an AI song today that's just broken free and been on a level, you know, of a Beyonce level, who's to say that that won't happen in the future? Um, when that happens, to the extent those works are are owned by by publishers, by corporations, there's going to be a drive to try to confer some sort of protection on this. But I think, you know, as you said earlier, wherever there is money to be made, people are going to want to protect the right to make that money. It's important to make something clear, which is that music has always been a process of remixing and recombining things that came before. De La Soul borrows from Led Zeppelin. John Philip Sousa rips off Gilbert and Sullivan. Even Baroque composers stole bits from each other and reworked them. This has always happened. The situation we talked about at the beginning of the show, where a Staples singer song becomes a Rolling Stones song, becomes an Andrew Oldham orchestra song, becomes a Verve song, the copyright courts had a lot of trouble getting that one right. So, Tom, let's go back to the question I posed. Imagine I have fed all those songs together into a neural net and let the AI blend them up and come out with a new composition that draws from all of them. Is that new song mine? Or do I need to divvy up the royalties between the Staples singers and the Stones and Andrew Oldham and the Verve? Or does that song belong to the AI? Or even the people who programmed the AI? Feel free to answer this in either a moral or a legal sense. Well, the funny thing is, if you, if you hadn't used an AI, you just like listened to a lot of music from those people, and then you sat down one day and got out your guitar and, and wrote something, that's kind of doing it yourself. I mean, that's, the AI is just doing what human musicians do in their brains, which is they're influenced by the stuff they hear, and it gives them ideas, and they kind of riff off that. So you could make a case that you don't have to pay anyone because this is just 
kind of the natural process of, of composition. It happens to be being done by software instead of your brain. Or you could take a really legalistic approach and say, oh, well, all of these people influenced this, this, this. So I think it really comes down to these these court cases, when the music is sufficiently successful and worth lots of money, suddenly people care about this kind of stuff. Um, and if it isn't, they don't. Yeah, I, I, music technology is going to keep advancing in ways that we can't predict. And along the way, it's probably going to make it easier for lots of people to make music. But also, the technology might have a bigger hand in the creation of that music, and that creates complications. And you mentioned this process that AI does, how it's just like what a human does, and you're dead on. You can imagine a neural net imbibing every Rolling Stone song and then spitting out a new Rolling Stone song that's been fed through the sensibilities of the computer. Well, is that really any different from the Rolling Stones who listened to hundreds of hours of American Roots music and then fed it through the sensibilities of the Rolling Stones to spit out something new? The process is remarkably similar, and that's because AI programmers designed it to be. I mean, that, that was the whole idea of neural nets originally is that it's you're sort of mimicking the way that brains are able to learn from experiences and you're, you're um, trying to give it that ability to, to connect patterns um, in, in some ways inspired by the way humans do. I am sure that the future Mick and Keith of AI are jamming somewhere in a basement server room right now. Actually, our lawyer told us we can't use very much of this chiptune version of the Rolling Stones' satisfaction, so we'll just do these credits with no music underneath. I'm Seth Stevenson. And I'm Tom Standage. The Secret History of the Future is a joint production of Slate and The Economist. It's produced by Bart Warshaw and Kate Holland. The senior producer for Slate Podcasts is TJ Raphael. The senior managing producer for Slate Podcasts is June Thomas. The executive producers are Gabriel Roth, the editorial director for Slate Podcasts, and Anne McElvoy, head of audio at The Economist. And thanks to Merritt Jacob, technical director at Slate. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode of The Secret History of the Future. But in the meantime, if you haven't already, subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And if you enjoyed this episode, why not also spend a few seconds and give us a glowing review, as it really helps other people find the show.